Welcome to Module 15 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last module, we began our discussion of bias, nemojudex, as a concept in the area of procedural entitlements. We focused there on the question of personal bias, subdivided into two categories, conflicts of interest on the one hand and prejudgment. There we learned that personal bias is measured against the standard of reasonable apprehension of bias generally. However, there are some exceptions. And so while conflicts of interest are always assessed on a reasonable apprehension of bias standard, prejudgment may be evaluated on a more accommodating standard of closed mind, at least where the decision maker is engaged in an investigatory or policy-based decision-making process. Reasonable apprehension of bias is reserved, in other words, at least in relation to prejudgment issues for adjudicative decision-making. Now, we also said in the last module that bias included not just personal bias, that is, impartiality of mind, but also institutional bias questions. In this module, we focus on that institutional bias question. I like to call this, in fact, structural lack of independence. This is bias stemming from the very structure of the entity, the decision maker, that has nothing to do with the words or actions of a given decision maker on that board. The very structure and nature of the board gives rise to the apprehension that the board cannot operate fairly with impartiality. The leading case in this area is a decision of the Supreme Court that goes by a numbered company name versus Regie. And so 2747-3174 Quebec versus Regie, which for obvious reasons, I'm simply going to call the Regie case. This case focused on a particular legal context in Quebec under the Quebec Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms. It was not, in fact, decided under the common law or under the other sources of procedural entitlements that we're talking about in this course. But nevertheless, this case has broader implications, as we'll see. It seems to have imported into administrative law a doctrine of structural lack of independence. Here, the court quashed the revocation of a liquor license. It did so because the body that revoked the liquor license gave overlapping functions to its directors and staff. In other words, there was a separation of functions issue that gave rise to concerns about bias. The staff lawyers who made submissions to the regie might then advise it regarding these same matters. And directors could initiate a review of a specific case, decide to hold a hearing, and then participate in the decision-making process. So put together, this overlapping of functions ran afoul of the test developed by the court whether a well-informed person viewing the matter realistically and practically and having thought the matter through would have a reasonable apprehension of bias in a substantial number of cases. That is, that this was a standing objection that would apply outside of the particular facts of any given case. It would apply to the range of cases that might come before this regime. Now, speaking generally, the sorts of structural components or behavior that might give rise to this form of structural lack of independence can be listed as follows. There are circumstances where the decision maker carries on more than one particular function, like in Regie, 
where the panel member is both a member of a preliminary process or inquiry and also thereafter a member of a final decision-making panel. There, there's a question of overlapping functions. Obviously, the concern here is that in performing their investigatory functions, they acquire a conclusion on the merits of a case, and that conclusion then frames what it is they do thereafter, a form of prejudgment, a structural form of prejudgment. A second example is where the tribunal staff is employed in a way by the tribunal that gives rise to this bias concern. For example, having that tribunal staff participate in all of the stages from investigation through to decision, performing that investigative role, performing that questioning role of potential witnesses if there's a hearing, and thereafter performing a decision advisory role, that can be problematic from a structural lack of independence perspective. Third, where the body has an institutional role in the proceedings that might be thought to bias the outcome. And so an investigative body that decides whether a complaint should proceed is also responsible for selecting the decision-making panel. That would obviously raise concerns about that investigative body gaming that panel to its benefit. A fourth example might be where the tribunal is thought to have a financial interest in a particular outcome. So, for example, the tribunal authorizes a cost award for the investigative wing of the agency that is part of it. And a final example might be the sort of circumstance that I mentioned briefly when we were talking about audio partum and they who hears must decide in relation to what's called the Tremblay case, and that is where there's an improper internal consultation between the members of a board prior to a final determination. And recall, in that line of cases that began with Consolidated Bathurst and went through Elliston and Tremblay, that a tribunal may have these plenary meetings to discuss matters of policy and law, but is not supposed to deliberate on the facts of a particular case heard only by a subset of that tribunal. And it was especially a problem where that meeting by the plenary body was mandatory and there were levers available to persons who had not heard the case that allowed them to influence the outcome of the panel that had heard the case. And so that's sort of a halfway house between audio partum and then this question of structural lack of independence, a form of bias. So I would call that the regie line of structural lack of independence cases. There's a separate line of cases that focuses not so much on these practices that give rise to these concerns about structural lack of independence, but the overarching structure of the tribunal itself. And so in a case called Matsky from the Supreme Court, the court considered whether the tribunal had to have the same sorts of attributes of independence as courts themselves must possess. And so there in Matsky, Justice Lemaire talked about the test for institutional independence being applied in light of the functions being performed by a particular tribunal. And the requisite level of institutional independence will depend on the nature of the tribunal, the interests at stake, and other indices of independence such as oaths of office. That's a test of sorts that overlaps to at least some degree with the Baker intensity test. Notice the reference to the nature of the tribunal and the interests at stake. The bottom line is that this test is most likely to emphasize tribunals that have what we would call a judicial or quasi-judicial function. Where the tribunal looks and walks and talks, a little bit like a court, there it's more likely that the Matsky decision will be relevant. And what does it focus on at the end in terms of this issue of independence? Well, the indicia of institutional independence under the Matsky framework focuses on security of tenure, financial security, and administrative control. These are the three pillars of judicial independence as well. You'll likely have encountered them in your prior classes. 
And so here, the standard of reasonable apprehension of bias applied for structural lack of independence for these judicial or quasi-judicial bodies focuses on the attributes we expect of courts. And to refresh your memory here, security of tenure, the central requirement is a tenure secure from interference or change by the appointing authority in any discretionary or arbitrary manner. The concern here is ensuring that a decision maker is not influenced by the prospect that they might lose their job. It is not uncommon, therefore, to find that for those formalized tribunals, the standard of tenure is the very same standard of tenure you find for judges, that is, that one has appointment to the office, usually for a fixed period of years, during good behavior. That is, you cannot be dismissed for anything other than cause. The second pillar of this independence concept drawn from judicial independence is financial independence. In the judicial independence context, it's about ensuring that judges' pay is set by a body of sufficient arm's length from the other branches of the state. It is less clear, certainly less clear to me, that this concept of financial independence really applies in any robust degree to an administrative tribunal that in effect is part of the executive branch and therefore is subject to the same financial and budgetary processes as exists for other components of the executive. My sneaking suspicion is that very few tribunals, certainly at the federal level, would meet this requirement of financial independence in the sense that their remuneration is guaranteed in some sort of independent manner, separate and apart from the regular Treasury Board process. The third requirement of judicial independence that Matsky speaks of as applying, at least in some rarefied contexts in administrative law, is so-called administrative control. Who determines which delegates hear the matter? In the judicial independence context, this is about ensuring that litigants cannot judge shop by controlling who it is that hears the case. Well, so too in the administrative tribunal context, the litigants, the parties, should not be in a position to choose their own decision makers. Now, it is comparatively uncommon at present, at least based on my trolling of the case law, for applicants to be successful in arguing a structural lack of independence, not least because where they succeed, that has the effect of making every decision made by that particular tribunal invalid. If it's biased from a structural perspective for one applicant, it will be biased for all others. And so you might imagine that courts are loath uh, to find such forms of structural lack of independence However, this was not the case in the late 1990s, where courts were quite content to rely on, surprisingly, the common law and its concept of procedural fairness and the related subset of bias and structural lack of bias to invalidate certain statutory regimes created for the federal human rights system. This was a remarkable series of cases in large measure because, as you know, the common law cannot prevail against contradictory statutory instructions. If you wish to invalidate the procedure mandated by statute, you'd best find a trigger other than the common law, namely the Bill of Rights at the federal level or the Charter Section 7. In a rash of decisions in the late 1990s, courts were not doing this until the corrective imposed by the Supreme Court in a case called Oceanport, where the court quite correctly recognized that the legislature could create whatever structure it wished unless an objection could be mounted under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That was a provincial case. The Canadian Bill of Rights would not apply. Thereafter, the Supreme Court, in a case called Bell, looked to the Canadian Bill of Rights in adjudicating whether the structure of the then-amended human rights system at the federal level complied with structural lack of independence requirements 
Vera concluded that while it was conceivable that structural lack of independence in a statute could be attacked using the Canadian Bill of Rights, nevertheless, the structure that had been established by Parliament complied with the requirements of the Canadian Bill of Rights in relation to this concern about structural lack of independence. So to sum up, we have two structural lack of independence considerations. We have that school of concern relating to functioning of a tribunal where it engages in practices that give rise to a concern that it's not sufficiently independent in its overall operations. Think about the Regie case in the idea of overlapping functions performed by various components of the tribunal. And we have the Matsky-style cases, which focus on the actual embedded and inherent structure of the tribunal, looking at security of tenure, financial independence, and administrative control over who it is that makes decisions. And that line of case law, now more muted than it was in prior decades, seems to focus on boards that can be said to be judicial or quasi-judicial and or where they have a very significant impact on the rights and interests of an individual. In either instance, the legislature is free to concoct whatever procedure it wishes a tribunal to pursue, including potentially giving rise to a circumstance where there is, say, no security of tenure, or potentially giving rise to a circumstance where there is overlapping functions. Parliament is supreme, it is sovereign, it may do so. In those circumstances, you have no recourse to bias complaints justified by the common law. However, if what it is that the tribunal is doing does trigger a Section 7 interest or an interest under the Canadian Bill of Rights, it is conceivable that you can use those instruments to challenge the structural lack of independence that Parliament has imposed on that tribunal. But as I've said, those are comparatively rare cases, at least as I record this module. Indeed, federal court cases where such allegations have been made have emphasized that the apprehension of bias must be substantial in such structural lack of independence cases, drawing on that language from Regie regarding a reasonable apprehension of bias in a substantial number of cases. One final point before we wrap up on this question of bias in administrative law, and that is the so-called doctrine of waiver. Any decision taken by the decision maker where there's a reasonable apprehension of bias is invalid. It is void. But an important caveat, the apprehension of bias will be waived unless the applicant raises this apprehension at the earliest possible point. That is, where they have full knowledge of what it is that gives rise to the apprehension of bias and the opportunity to object before the decision maker themselves, typically to ask them to recuse themselves from any further participation in the decision making. If you fail to do so, it may well be that a court subsequently on judicial review will conclude that you waived your right to now object before the court and will not award you the remedy that you now seek. And so now we put aside our discussion of the content of procedural fairness. We've dealt with audi ultram partum. We've dealt with nemo judix. It's now time to move on to the second broad area of administrative law, that is substantive errors that administrative decision makers must avoid. That is the subject of the next module. Until then, this ends module 15.